for you. Let's pray together. Father, we want to turn our eyes upon Jesus. We want to know the fullness of your grace and the fullness of your love and care for us revealed at the cross. Thank you for reminding us this morning that there is power at the cross, power to save, power to sanctify, power to mature and grow us. So, Lord, would you help us to look to Jesus today? Would you help us to set our eyes on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father? We thank you, Father, that these things are true. We thank, you've included, we thank you that you've included us in these great and wonderful blessings. So in this moment, we stop to pray for ourselves, for our own hearts, and for those around us. We pray for those sitting around us. We pray for the others in this room. We pray for each other to be able to hear your voice, to be able to hear your word and to be changed by it. God, we pray by your Holy Spirit you would come and help us to listen to your word. Lord, I pray that I would be able to declare your truth clearly and boldly, but I also pray that we would all be able to hear and understand and apply your word to our own hearts. And so to that end, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit we would hear a better sermon than the one that's preached. That you would make it to be powerful and living and active in our hearts that, that we might embrace it, that we might be changed by it, that we might be set free by your truth and we might learn to love you and trust you and bank our hopes on you all the more. We need you in this moment. I need you in this moment, Lord. This is such a great text. You have used this text in so many believers' lives and I pray you do it again this morning. Do it for all of us, I pray, in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Let's continue turning our eyes upon Jesus by turning in our copy of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. This is my favorite chapter in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. If you need to grab a pew Bible in the rack in front of you, Romans 8 is on page 944. Romans 8 contains some breathtaking truth that is designed to sustain us and give us hope as we live in this world full of groaning. All of these verses in Romans chapter 8, all of these truths are breathtaking to behold. They are massive in their scope of everything in all of life. And the ones we're going to look at today in verses 28 through 30 are among the most breathtaking of all. I know for sure I cannot begin to even think about exhausting the sweetness that's contained in these three verses. All week long, I've had this sort of underlying anxiety as I've considered how inadequate I am to handle such an important passage. And so I'm going to read this text. I'm going to preach this morning with the confident hope that the Holy Spirit will take this sermon and make it more than my ability or capacity to declare it. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. This is the infallible word of our God. Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is the precious Word of our God. May He burn its truth into our souls. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Of all the truths about God contained in these three verses, this one truth is over and under and around all the other ones. God is sovereign. Now, if sovereign is not a word and concept that you have of God, I am so glad you are here this morning. Because understanding and embracing this reality is precious beyond comprehension. So, what does it mean to say God is sovereign? To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is in complete control of everything that takes place in the entire universe. When we say God is sovereign, we don't mean just sovereign over part. We mean sovereign over all. Everything that happens is ordained and orchestrated by God. Nothing takes place outside of His control. God is in charge of literally everything, both physical and spiritual. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, when He pleases, and always as He pleases. God is not dependent on anyone or anything. He doesn't need to consult with anyone. And He does not act according to anyone else's desires. That He is sovereign means that He is independent of any and all outside influence. The sovereignty of God means that God orders and ordains everything in the universe according to His own purpose. And please hear me. The sovereignty of God is not limited to planets and nations and massive world events. Most Christians I've ever met are fine with saying God is sovereign in the big sense. He's sovereign over the big things. But many get uncomfortable when we say God is sovereign over our lives and the decisions that we make. When I say that God is sovereign, when I say the Bible says God is sovereign, I mean He is sovereign over every single detail of every one of our lives. Church family, I love this truth. I love this truth. This truth about God has dramatically impacted my life. It is not an overstatement to say that this one attribute of God is the foundation of all my joy. My trust and confidence in God is directly related to my belief in Him as totally sovereign. Here's how Jonathan Edwards described how he felt about God's sovereignty. And see if you resonate with this as well. Edwards said, Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of His glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore Him as a sovereign God. This is a sweet aspect of God's glory 
of God's beauty, of His loveliness. This is an aspect of God that should delight our hearts to the deepest core. God is totally sovereign. And Romans 8, 28-30, instructs us of at least two aspects of the specific sovereignty of God. We learn from these three verses that God is sovereign over our suffering, and God is sovereign over our salvation. God is sovereign over our suffering, and God is sovereign over our salvation. So let's consider what the text says about both of these truths. The first one is God is sovereign over our suffering. So Romans 8.28 begins with a declaration of assurance Paul says, we know something to be true. We know something. We are confident of this. Paul says that for those who love God, that for those who are called according to God's purpose, all things work together for good. We know this, Paul says. And notice that Paul says, all things work together for good. Now what if Paul had said, most things, or Some things work together for good. I submit to you that would be more than we deserve, but that would make this promise meaningless, right? Because we would never know if our thing was working together for our good. It would be maddening to believe that there are some things that exist in the world that are for our ultimate harm. But Paul clearly says, all things. And just in case we can't bring ourselves to believe that Paul actually meant All things, like maybe someone could argue that Paul was just exaggerating for effect here. The context of Romans 8 is the context of suffering and evil and pain. In verse 18, remember Paul mentioned that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Paul says we groan along with the creation because of sin. And Paul ends Romans 8 by emphatically declaring that nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus. And then just in case we don't believe that he's talking about suffering and evil and hardship, he lists the things that can't separate us. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or death or things present or things to come. Nothing can separate us. And so I'd say it's pretty clear that by all things in verse 28, Paul means all things, both good and bad. Everything that happens to those who love God and to those who are called according to to His purpose, all things work for their good. If we're in Jesus, there is nothing that can happen to us that will not be for our good. All things means all things. And so in reality, I should have titled this first truth, God is sovereign over everything. That's what it says, right? All things. This is what the text is saying. That's the general truth. But because of the context and Paul seeking to give us hope in the midst of the suffering of this life, I'm confident the more specific truth of Romans 8.28 is God is sovereign over our suffering. Paul says we know this. We are confident of this. And so it's one thing to have sort of a general understanding of God being sovereign over all of life. But what about when it comes to our sickness and the tragedies that happen to us? What about when a loved one is stricken? What about when natural disasters occur? Do we believe God is sovereign over those sorrows? 
Do we believe that God controls and ordains the suffering that happens to us? That's what Paul says we know here. That's what Paul is specifically teaching. Not just that God is sovereign over all, but He's sovereign specifically over our suffering. Now, how can it be that we can be sure that God is in control of all things and will work them for our good? The ESV translates this verse as all things work together. And so it's almost like you could come to this verse and say, well, it's just an inevitable law of life, like gravity. Right? What goes up must come down. All things are going to work out in the end. You hear unbelievers use this kind of language all the time. Well, everything's going to work out for good in the end. Is this just a given in the universe that all things work out for good just on their own? Is that just the way it happens? No. The implied subject and actor of verse 28 is God. In fact, there is some manuscript difficulty with this verse. You can see in the footnote that the ESV actually says some reliable manuscripts say more explicitly that God works all things together for good. In fact, that's the way many modern translations translate Romans 8.28 to make this point clear that God is the one who works all things together for our good. But whichever translation you prefer here, the sovereignty of God is clearly implied. Nothing can thwart His plan to work all things for good. All things don't just work out on their own, but rather God does this. God intends them for good. He is the cause. He is the orchestrator of all that is. It is His hand that is guiding and ordaining all things, including the suffering and hardship and pain and grief and sorrow of our lives. As Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. People mean all kinds of evil things against us, but the Bible says God behind it means it for good. God is the one who is working, who is behind all the events of, events of our lives, quilting together the circumstances for our benefit. Listen, if you're in a circumstance, if you're in a suffering that is bad, that is evil even, you can be sure that God is not done working in that situation. How can you be sure? Because Romans 8.28 says the end of it all, the, the way God is orchestrating will be for your benefit. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. And He does all that He pleases. And we know from Romans 8.28 that what God pleases is to work all things for the good of those who love Him. This is the rock-solid foundation that we stand on in this world that seems random and haphazard and often seems downright cruel. As Christians, we don't believe in chance we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in karma. We believe in a sovereign God who controls all things for our good. Romans 8.28 says that everything in our lives, good, bad, righteous, evil, sinful, shameful, thrilling, everything is orchestrated to bring us good. This is a promise. This is a promise you can count on. God never wastes the circumstances and sufferings of our lives. Never. He is in control to do us good. You've never had a tear. You've never had a pain or a heartache or a grief that wasn't designed by God to do you good if you are called according 
to God's purposes. Now, here's probably the most important clarification that we have to hear about Romans 8.28. You and I don't get to define what good means. You and I don't get to decide whether something is good or not. That's not our place. You can't interpret this promise according to what you think is good for you because you and I have no idea what good is apart from God. God is good and He gets to define what is good for us. But whatever God designs, we can know it will be work for our good according to His definition of good. That's what Romans 8.28 is teaching. So please understand, this verse does not say everything is good. This verse says God will take everything, including the evil stuff, and He will work it together for our ultimate good. Whatever happens to us, what we do to ourselves, what others do to us, it may be extremely bad. But if we love Jesus, the result will be good according to God's definition of good, which we're going to see in verse 29 Paul says the good that God intends is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so please hear this. Being more like Jesus is the good that God is working in every circumstance of our lives. Now, I have no idea how anyone can live in this world without confidence in this truth. I have no idea how they do it. God is sovereign over everything in all of life, including the suffering and evil that happened to us. If you don't have this truth as the foundation of your life, you will despair. In fact, believing this promise is the only way you can ever obey the Bible commands to rejoice in your suffering and sorrow. Like, how are you going to rejoice if you don't believe your circumstances are for your good? It's impossible. So here's a sweet pillow to lay your head on. God is sovereign over your suffering. He will not waste one ounce of pain. He will work it for your good. We know this. We are confident of this. There is no place for complaining about our circumstances in the Christian life. Groaning with hope? Yes. But not faithless complaining. Because we know the God who's in control and the God who said... He will work all things for our good if we love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now notice that Paul explicitly says who this promise is for. It's not for everyone. This promise is not for everyone. It is only for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And so what Paul does in verses 29 and 30 is he gives clarification to who this promise is for. And in doing so, we learn this second truth about God's sovereignty. Number two, God is sovereign over our salvation. He's sovereign over our suffering. He's also sovereign over our salvation. And so verses 29 and 30 contain a whole theology of salvation. Paul describes what God has done to save those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Loving God and being called according to His purpose is not something that we do ourselves. It's something that has been worked in us. It is something that's the foundation of this call of God to be called according to His purpose. 
So the most important truth to notice in these two verses, verses 29 and 30, is that God is the one who is initiating here. God is the one who is accomplishing something in our salvation. This is, this is not about us and what we've done. This is about what God has done. And so the unmistakable truth of these verses is that God is the one who saves. And God alone is the one who saves. Salvation from beginning to end is all of the Lord. So there are five verbs in these verses to show a basic order of our salvation. Notice that God is the actor of all five of these verbs. Paul says, God foreknew His people. God predestined those He foreknew. God called those He predestined. And God, God justified those He called. And God glorified those He justified. So this has often been called the golden chain of our salvation. The golden chain of our salvation. The idea is that each one of these actions of God are inseparably linked to all the other actions. No link in the chain can be missing. If God does one of them, He does all of them. Notice, the same number of people who are foreknown are also glorified. The same number of people who are predestined are also glorified. The same number of people who are called are also glorified. The same number of people who are justified are also glorified. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, no breaks in the links of this chain. Foreknowledge is welded to the predestination. The predestination is infallibly linked with the calling. The calling with the justification and the justification with the glorification. There is no hint given that there may be a flaw or break in this series. Get a hold of anyone and you possess the whole. The called man is the predestined man. Let him be sure of that. And the justified man shall be a glorified man. Let him have no doubt whatever about that. The unbreakable chain of our salvation shows that God is sovereign over it all. So let's consider each one of the links of this chain that I mentioned. There are, there are other links that Paul doesn't mention here. There's faith, there's adoption, there's sanctification, etc. But these five sort of summarize the actions of God to save His people. So let's look at each one of them. First, Paul says, God foreknew us. God foreknew us. Now this is one of the most debated words in this whole chapter. What does it mean that God foreknew who He would save. Does this mean, as some have claimed, that God looked down through history and saw who would become Christians and then foreknew that those people would eventually trust Him? In other words, is this merely saying that God knows everything, past, present, and future? Well, yes, God does know everything. But verse 29 cannot merely be referring to God's exhaustive knowledge of who would become a Christian. No, notice that God is doing something for His people here. Something that results in salvation and glorification. So this foreknowledge is not caused by some other action, like our faith, but rather this foreknowledge is what sets in motion the other actions of God to save. And so the concept of knowing something or someone in the Bible is more than mere head knowledge. The Word speaks of knowing in an intimate way. So Adam knew his wife Eve means more than just he knew about her. 
It's speaking about intimacy. It's speaking about relationship. When God foreknows someone, it's speaking about His decision to love them. To foreknow means to forelove. So Paul is saying that before we were ever born, indeed before time began, God decided to place His affection not on everyone, because everyone's not glorified. Everyone's not justified. So God sets His knowledge not on everyone, but on His chosen people. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are foreloved by God. God's decision to love you is not based on anything you have done or will do. He loves you because He decided to love you. This is a precious and reassuring truth that should make us marvel that we are among the foreknown. But that's not all. Second, Paul says, God predestined us. Everyone who's foreloved is also predestined by God. To predestine means to mark out beforehand. So all those whom God foreloved, God predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. God foreknows with a special predetermining love, and that love carries with it a decision to determine beforehand. Now, in many Christian circles, the word predestination is a subject that's avoided at all costs. It's viewed as a very negative word. However, here it is in the Bible. And so listen, regardless of what you believe predestination means, I just I want you to be comfortable with the word. It's, it's here, it's taught in Scripture. So regardless of how you understand the concept, all Christians believe in predestination. It's clearly a biblical concept. And so we can debate and argue the exact meaning, and that's fine. Listen, it's fine. We don't all have to have the same understanding of this, but we cannot reject that this is true in the Bible. So my understanding of this truth is that predestination refers to the action of God whereby He sovereignly and lovingly decides beforehand who to save and who to adopt into His family. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So this isn't some action of God after we trust in Christ. This is clearly an action that happens even before the world was created. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, God didn't decide to save you moments before you became a Christian based on your response to Him. No, He chose you for Himself before He created the world. The only reason I'm a Christian is because God predestined me to be so. Not based on anything good or bad, right or wrong in me. His predestination of you if you're in Christ is the reason you turn from your sin and trusted in Jesus which, of course, is necessary for salvation. This is one of the sweetest blessings of God. I fought against this truth. I remember as a young Christian, I fought against this idea that God chose me before the foundation of the world. But when I submitted to this, when I submitted to the clear teaching of Scripture, the whole Bible opened up to me, and I saw God as a sovereign in control God, who I could trust in any and every circumstance of my life. This is one of the sweetest lessons of God. Not only that He did this is amazing, but that He told us this is how He did it. It's His abundance of grace toward us. This is a blessing we ought to regularly thank and praise our God for. This is an absolutely staggering thought. Long before I was born, Long before anyone was born, 
before the world was created, the triune God chose me to be one of his adopted children. And Paul is going to continue to teach and delight in this truth through Romans chapter 9, where Paul is going to defend God's right to do what God pleases. Who are we to question God's righteousness in accomplishing His purpose? How can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me such? And Paul says here in verse 29 that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Why? So that Jesus would be preeminent. All of this is so that Jesus would be seen and known as glorious. Salvation is all about the glory of God. We are not the sinner. We are not the purpose. It is all about showing the beauty of our Savior. So foreknowledge and predestination happen before we do anything at all. But what does God actually do to accomplish this salvation in us? Notice the third link in this golden chain in verse 30. Third, Paul says God called us. God called us. If God has foreknown and predestined us, He also calls us to Himself. This is what Romans 8.28 is referring to when it says, those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this is not referring to the general gospel call that goes out to everyone. So, for example, we preach the gospel indiscriminately. We call people to repentance and faith. But that's not what Paul's talking about because this call is effectual. All who are called in this way are justified. So this must be referring to a special, irresistible call of God. Not everyone is called in this way. How do we know that? Well, because everyone's not justified and glorified. And so the call of God that Paul has in mind here is not like when I call my dog. right? She may or may not come, and she usually doesn't. This call is like the call of Jesus to the dead man, Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. This call contains the power to produce what it commands. It's an effectual call. This, this call is what creates the faith in us. See, faith is necessary for salvation. No one is a Christian who does not trust in Jesus. However, friends, you and I, none of us are willing nor able to trust in Jesus on our own. And so God has to do something. He must give us the new birth. He must open our eyes. He must draw us to Himself. And that's what this calling refers to. It's an effectual call. Praise God for calling us to Himself. What a gift. But there's more. Notice fourth, Paul says God justifies us. If He calls us, if He calls us and creates that faith in us, then He will justify us. Now, Paul's already defended and exalted in the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the book of Romans, and so we're not going to spend much time on it here, but just a reminder, justification is God declaring us to be righteous in His sight. We are unrighteous, but in the gospel, God reveals His righteousness by justifying sinners, by righteousing the unrighteous. In justification, we are declared not guilty, and we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And so justification is God's work. We don't justify ourselves. We don't make ourselves justified. God declares us to be justified. And all those whom He foreknew, He predestined, He called, and He justified. Fifth, Paul says God glorified us. God glorified us. Those God justified, He also glorified. And so glorification is the completion of our salvation. 
It is being with Jesus in glory. We will be glorified when Jesus returns and our sin nature is finally annihilated. When we see Jesus, we will be like Him. Now, this is the only link in the golden chain that is still future for us. But did you notice that Paul uses the past tense here to describe this action of God? Those he justified, he also glorified. And so why didn't Paul say, those he justified, he will also one day glorify? Why didn't he say that? Well, I'm positive Paul's being intentional here. Paul is so convinced, he is so convicted that this will certainly happen that he communicates it as if it's already done. From God's perspective, glorification is already done. This chain is so unbreakable that there is no doubt it will be accomplished. Indeed, it has been accomplished. God doesn't foreknow, predestined, call, justify His people only to lose them before the end. This chain is unbreakable. God's people are eternally secure in Him. He will hold us fast if we are in Christ. Nothing will separate us from His love. The One who began the work will certainly bring it to completion. I love these truths. I don't love these truths. I love how sure these truths are. Could they be communicated any more sure? It will happen. It already has from God's perspective. These truths, friends, they're so foundational to everything we should believe and bank our life on. If God has saved us, we know He will continue saving us and we know He will glorify us. God is sovereign over our suffering and God is sovereign over every aspect and part of our salvation. Church family, as one of your pastors, I am not sure there are any more central truths outside of the Gospel itself that I would want to say to you today that I believe would be the best thing for you no matter what you face from this day forward. God is sovereign over your suffering and God is sovereign over your salvation. These two massive pillars will give you so much joy, so much faith, so much hope in this world so full of sorrow. Friends, no matter what happens to you, no matter what sickness or sorrow you have, no matter whose grave you stand over, no matter what doubts or insecurities arise in your heart, I want you to know that God is in control of it all. He is in total and complete control. He is sovereign. He will never waste your hurts and He will bring you home in the end. If you believe these truths, you will be a stable, joyful Christian as you await your final redemption. But please hear me. Everyone in this room, please hear me. If you're not in Christ, these truths are not true for you. If you're not in Christ, if you don't love God and are not called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28 is not true for you. And you will not be saved in the end if you're not in Christ. And so let this text propel you to trust in Jesus, to cast yourself wholeheartedly on the grace and mercy of God and find these things to be true of you today. And I pray every single one of us from the youngest baby in this room to the oldest saint who's been walking with Jesus forever, I pray that we respond to these truths like Paul does in verse 31. 
which we're going to see next week, God willing. And he responds by saying, what then shall we say to these things? What's the response to these awesome truths? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, with you for us, there is nothing, no circumstance, no person, no sorrow, no suffering, no doubt. Nothing can be against us if you're for us. And so, oh God, help us to respond to your word with faith and joy in you. Holy Spirit, come do your work in our hearts to confirm these truths in us and to help us walk according to them. Oh God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that you would help them to believe these truths in their darkest moments. I pray they would delight in these truths when their soul is downcast within them. I pray that depression would be battled against with these truths. I pray that anxiety would be battled against this morning with these truths. I pray that doubts and insecurities would be gone in the name of Jesus because Romans 8, 28 through 30 is true. Oh God, do your work in our hearts in your way. We trust you. We need you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing, This is Amazing Grace.